where she her endeavor is to bring in not only um, uh, homegrown cultural theory uh, and, and, and literary scholarship, but for example, she has been uh, the translator of the um, uh, Vietnamese American, right, or no? Yeah, Vietnamese American theorist uh, Trinity Minha. And uh, I've heard that lately uh, there are plans to translate uh, the works of Elaine Sixou into German uh, within the series, which is quite an achievement, I would say. Um, in any case, uh, it is a, a great pleasure, and particularly uh, since uh, both, but uh, Anna much more than I, uh, have been founding members of a new association. Uh, it's a kind of informal network. It started as a little... Verein, which is very typical for Austria, you, when you want to do something, you, you found an association, a ac little academic association, but it soon evolved into a sort of informal network uh, called ARCA, uh, Arbeitskreis Kultur, Analyse, so it's a circle for cultural uh, analysis, uh, and it has become, uh, it has acquired some international, um, or in a way it has spread out into the neighboring countries and internationally, so it is there if you want uh, to look for it, AKA, ACA, and uh, also has a Facebook uh, representation. And it has been, I would say, uh, in the, within the Austrian context, a very important uh, driving force for basically putting cultural studies, cultural theory on the academic map. And uh, this is an enormous achievement uh, for which I'm, I'm very grateful to Anna. And this might be pleasure. Uh, to uh, introduce her today, and particularly uh, she has moved uh, a little bit further from uh, post-colonial into migration studies, and uh, she will present her project, which is a comparative project, uh, and the first steps into it she will uh, present. Uh, today she was scheduled actually to go to Stanford afterwards, uh, this, uh, this didn't work out uh, for technical reasons, but oh, we will be sure, I'm sure we will find a way to kind of, you know, find kind of international setup for this wonderful project. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, thank you and your wonderful team for being such tremendous hosts. It is an incredibly, incredibly productive and at the same time gentle environment here. A perfect place to be. And I'm utmost grateful to be here, to have time to think and to write, to meet all those fabulous colleagues, to make friends and also to have fun. Thank you, Jürgen Barkov, that you took part in choosing me. This was really a wonderful effort. Thank you very much. And um, uh, thank you, Clemens. What shall I say? You just motivated me in the first place to come here and this was such a good idea. Thanks a lot. Last but not least, I want to thank you, dear audience, for coming and listening to my presentation this evening. Now, in the first part of it, I will rather briefly outline the whole idea of my project. In the second part of my talk, I will present to you a first exemplary uh, reading of a literary text. And in the end, I will introduce uh, some of the Irish texts that uh, I will, I hope to consider for my inquiry. Um, now, for the part one. 
the core of my uh, cultural poetical study is the comparative anal analysis of contemporary literature labeled as migration literature. The emphasis lies on the literary production of the last 25 years in Austria and Ireland. Always different historical, political, geographical uh, backgrounds, both countries uh, are genuinely characterized by the effect of migration. Even though migration to Ireland is a more recent phenomenon uh, than what one could state for Austria. Taking into account the current geopolitical circumstances, the topic is not only of scholarly interest, but proves to be of high political and social relevance. My analysis scrutinizes descriptions such as migrant or transcultural literature, which are ambivalent in terms of their motivation and effects, as well as the literary production by authors with an immigrant background who live in Austria and Ireland. I will examine those texts with regard to the poetic constitution, formal innovation and specific content they have introduced into Austrian and Irish literature. Of major interest are literary phenomena that are involved in one way or the other in the formation of transitory identities and in the reflection of living and writing in between, between cultures amid languages across borders, as Harley put it. Since those phenomena engage with the challenging complexity of multicultural worlds and their transformation. Literature in the terminology of cultural studies both reflects cultural processes and actively intervenes in them, thus is generating reality. That means that I shall examine literature not only as a resonating body but also as a constitutive element in social reality and its transformation. This juristic assumption of uh, a category, migration literature, that will also be put to test in the course of my inquiry, motivates the selection of the writings. I do not think of migration literature as a monolithic block, but, on the contrary, as a site of diverse articulations where the sometimes also violent confrontation of different cultures and belief systems are negotiated. Sorry or the border between home and outland, native and foreigner, foreigner is challenged, or the concrete diasporic experience and multi-end or transcultural ways of life open up new ways of thinking and reflection. The latter goes, uh, go hand in hand with a, uh, a closed, uh, sorry, importantly, um, this literature, this migration literature, questions the horizon of the so-called uh, national literature, literatures and the latter go hand in hand with a closed, self-contained identity conception suggesting strict cultural alienation and radical homogenization. Deterritorialized diasporic literature, on the contrary, develops a kind of new international literature that, albeit being a small literature, mostly, mostly written in the language of the majority, develops a specific aesthetics, a new poetics, a poetic, poetics of migration, as one could call it. Hence, my study will show that the 
intercultural constellation is not only a topic of the text, but an essential, crucial element of the aesthetics of the text. The newly built in-between spaces and transit spaces become the center of the aesthetic innovation. The living in more than one world, the cultural dividedness, the localization in the so-called third space, drawing here on a concept of Hobi Baba, is made productive. So, concluding the first part of my talk, I'd like to point out that I understand and conceptualize migration following Eva Hausbacher as a practice of cultural translation, as a movement within political, historical, linguistical, cultural, and socio-cultural spaces of the in-between, and, moreover, as a performance that realizes itself in different kinds of literary writings. Contrary to certain characteristics of the so-called exile literature, migration literature is not mainly about suffering in a foreign country, but about writing, creating, performing hybrid life scripts that intervene into homogeneous cultural identities. Post-colonial theory builds the theoretical basis for my readings and provides us the major tools to understand the mobility of the border crosser and her or his literary activities. As, for example, Julia Bach already mentioned concepts of the third space and hybridity. Further theoretical approaches on which I draw will be, especially in my analysis tonight, theories of memory and autobiography, both important with respect to processes of reconstruction and deconstruction of identities within the realm of migration literature. So, out of my Austrian sample, this is, for example, Doron Rabinovici uh, or Dimitri Dinev or Anna Kim, I will tonight just take one text and I do this exemplary reading so that it becomes clear what I conceive of all these um, um, methodological and theoretical approaches. So, part two. The Poetics of Migration in Senia Inzaif's novel Farouk. Senia Inzaif was born the son of an Austrian mother and an Iraqi father in Vienna. And he works as a freelance writer. He writes poetry and narrative prose. Farouk is his first novel. Geographically spoken, um, the text enrolls itself in Vienna and in Baghdad. Yes. I translated the German text into English myself for the purpose of the talk. I have to tell you that the process of translation, the copying of the Arab letters, has transformed them. So you see them mirror inverted in my PowerPoint. I could not, however, change this anymore for the talk today. It's very complex to deal with Arab letters. And in one way or the other, it's also interesting what this translation and transformation have 
cost unwillingly. So, starting with the reading of the text, I will read quite a long piece of Sema Inzaif's text to you of pictures and sounds. Shuruk, here it was. Shuruk, it sounded completely different than his usual words. Shuruk, his body gave birth to it nearly until it swelled out of his throat again, twofold. Shark, shark and shuruk. It indicated a direction, a direction within himself or out of himself, an idea like, like the rising sun, a direction in the sky. Exactly that was it. Shark, shark and shuruk, shuruk out of a different language, a foreign one. No, not foreign, familiar, the sound in the body, yet also inapprehensible, somehow. But after all, out of a language that he would call one of his, of his very languages. Pleasantly vast it felt when he pronounced it, that word shark and shuruk. It was the east, shark, and it was the sunrise, shuruk, that appeared inside him. When the east appears in Semyen Zayf's novel as an Arabic word, as a typeface in the German text, then the sun rises and memories gain contour in the same way as words do. It's about words and memories in the novel, about speaking, being able to speak, it's about the loss of language and memory, about the bondage to language and the interweaving of identity with language, about the in-between of identities due to language, it's about the writing and speaking and reciting in the in-between of languages, it's about the urging of letters and language pictures out of the disembodied snout, out of which a significant and exceptional narrative level of the text unfolds. There it is, the powerful, eloquent snout, creating neologisms and word cascades in a nearly inexhaustible manner that's in the prologue and in the main part of the text. And there's a narrator in the main part that has greatest difficulty to speak. There are memories to create a space, an imaginary space between Vienna and Baghdad that will somehow be perambulated by the narrator and that can be considered as the core of identity formation in both a literal and metaphorical manner. The phrase even though he believes to remember them, pervades the text as a kind of leitmotif and illustrates the uncertain grounds of this memory process. Memory is occurring in the text in many different ways, often in the way of Marcel Proust's concept of mémoire volontaire, that means intentionally, for example, triggered through a special book or a paper, a text that the protagonist takes with him, often in the pocket of the coat. Sometimes, however, in an unconscious and spontaneous manner, like provoked through an object, a found object or a sound. 
letters and phrases take the law in their own hand as if they were personified. Phrases as well as memories befall the narrator uncontrollably and headstrong and create at the end of the book a clearer and more transfer, transparent understanding of the text and its identity formations. The memory space between Vienna and Bogda becomes a kind of a context zone between cultures and languages. The difference between the two cultures is experienced as speech, speechlessness on the one hand, exuberant oratory on the other hand, and the latter is also perceivable with reference to the aesthetics and poetics of the text. For example, by way of paratactically arranged text modules in the European, by smoother, more melodic in the Arab imaginative space. The text unfolds within the in-between of these spaces, within this variety of overlapping and each other commenting in-between spaces. Consequently, written in small letters. It is a text that is not characterized by a consistent plot, but rather by a transcultural and meandering language world written in form of a rhythmic prose, strongly steeped by neologisms. <clears throat> Starting from the first person narrator, the text unfolds nuances and facets of life stories by ways of spreading a memory tissue, as I would call it, uh, as voice and sound carpet that literally cries to be read, to be recited aloud, and I will do that in a moment. Starting now from these content-oriented poetic and rhetorical aspects of the text, I will, in addition to traditional text analytical instruments that form the basis of any analysis, try a reading that orients itself on post-colonial deconstructive and memory theoretical approaches and concepts taking into account the manifold aspects of the already mentioned in-betweens that can be significant <coughs> for texts written at the turn of the third millennium. Because with the turn that heralds the dawn of the third millennium, there is perhaps particularly one turn addressed that as a whole has become important for contemporary cultural studies approaches, the so-called post-colonial turn. And one can interconnect it closely with, uh, one could say, this migration poetic turn. I conceive this term, however, not limited to the reading of colonial and post-colonial texts in the strict sense, or with respect to the role played by these texts for the construction of social and historical contexts, but I'm rather interested in the development of its analytical repertoire, as well as in the reflection of a socio-political situation that is, today, as Doris Bachmann-Medic points out, totally dominated by migration, diaspora, and exile, and that questions all these historical categories such as identity, nation, society, citizens, massively. The analysis of the so-called global subjects requires, due to the diverse identity formations, new analytic approaches, new criteria and instruments 
since those that are available conventionally are faced with limitations at the point where the autonomous literary and cultural production is thwarted by forms of expressions of mar marginalized cultures and literatures. Supposedly, universal, universal categories and of analysis prove to be questionable where they, for example, encounter narrative structures including orality, where linear structures are undermined by forms which are characterized by discontinuities and syncretic shapes, where texts differ from European variations of allegory and irony, where texts include sound and voice and rhythm, where those texts fade in untranslated words that, due to the text's topic of exile and diaspora, already thwart the traditional European thematic spectrum. Arguing like this, Bachmann Medic provides many good arguments for a reading of Inzaev's texts that also includes post-colonial theory approaches. That does not mean, however, that I would label Senior Inzaev's text that appeared 2009 in an Austrian uh, publishing, uh, publisher with what is called generally as migration literature, since the Vienna-born author's mother tongue is German and Inzaif does not speak Arab, part of the heritage of his father, an immigrant from Iraq, perfectly. Inzaif, before the appearance of Farouk, known as German language poet and musician, only starts to study High Arab as adult. A fact that, however, enables him to reactivate the Arab of his childhood. That means the sounds and the music of the language conveyed to him through the storytelling by his father, thus through Arab fables and fairy tales in a dialect from Baghdad. The topic of exile and diaspora, however, is inscribed in Farouk in a twofold way. That is, at the level of content, in terms of its dual origin, as well as the aesthetic level. The text is characterized by a poetics and rhetoric which is marked by inclusions of different kinds of sounds, voices, rhythms, of untranslated or untranslatable words, means of those Arab typefaces, that irritate through their strangeness, but bring at the same time the text to life, let it resound in ourselves. The sun, Shuruk, rises in Inzaif's text in an irritating, unsettling way, in this at least at first sight relatively unknown textual term of words and memories. Immediately after the heading of the text, named the prologue, the text starts in a command-like tone. Come on, talk to me. We already know that it is the mouth, the snout, snout that speaks. Take your time, sit down and let's talk in peace. Forget even everything you are charged with or employed with and let us just speaking instance, the homo diegetic narrator, the he or she, 
the gender of the narrator that is performing here so demandingly is not clear, addresses a you that has not been introduced yet. However, the dialogue fails. The address party does not answer, and so the prologue turns out to be a monologue, rather. At stake is speaking. Put yourself together. What more should I do so that you talk to me? Speeches and the speech. It is about the effect of your speech. Silence. Is speaking or silence the initiation of everything? Voice. Raise your voice. Take care of it. You know why. Articulation. Yes, you have no other choice but to speak, to make yourself understood, to articulate yourself. The organs of speech. I'm going to unloose your tongue from the palate. The meaning of words and their innocence. The mere word will decide whether you are found guilty or innocent. The text presents itself as extensive exploration of the described word field, as language game par excellence. Within this gesture of the text that goes on throughout seven pages, the text creates a composition, a feeling and counterplay that puts the words into a peculiar movement in which then the speech is, is the mouth itself. Is your speech a real speech? Is it speaking for itself? Is the talk of your speech itself speech again? Is it a product of your snout with some real bite? A must? Since the speech itself is a snout, it must jump into your face, must hold onto you, must become a self-snout for you. Speech neck fully open. Well then, cheers. So that's my translation of a um, very innovative language in German. So I, I really tried hard for it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just a try, first try. Virtually mounted into this game, this language game, are scientific descriptions of the functions of the organs that allow to speak in the first place, allow mere articulation. Only noises that the human beings generate in the so-called articulation channel, consisting of throat, nose and mouth, and not those put forth with other body parts, are of interest in the field of phonetics. For the process of articulation, exhaled air is used predominantly. In some, language, in some languages exists sounds that are produced with inspired air. The internal focalization of this textual part is, with, is which a strong narrator makes strong demands to a you. A you that is perceived as a reader of the text is interrupted by a passage that gives objective explanation of the physiological premises that are necessary to fulfill what the storyteller's figure demands. Talk to me. After only seven pages, the length of the prologue, this linguistically skillful experimental piece of text becomes an ironic response to what the so-called migrant literature generally is expected to fulfill a tragic life narrative 
and which one's own biography, the life in, in between the lack of identity and homelessness becomes central, as the blurb of the book suggests. Often paired with the loss of the no longer availability of the mother tongue. The text, however, proceeds differently. It leaves the position of the particular segment of literary production that identifies the so-called migration literature. It moves from the margin of the literary production to the center, composed in a high, highly developed language, a language of proficiency. When, in the main part of the text, the narrator alludes to mother tongue or father tongue, it sounds as follows. It's a long quote, but you have to really listen. It makes a difference, listening uh, and not only reading. <clears throat> words, nothing but words, and never risen over his lips these word sequences as a threshold for a long time not risen over his, over his lips, only in his thinking, in his thinking belief, without tone, without mouth, without farm. Farm equals mouth. So it speaks itself in his mother tongue, speaks itself deep into his mouth, not out of it. Farm, farm equals mouth from one language into another, from the father tongue into the mother tongue, from the motherland to the homeland, through the mouth of the sun, down the throat, up the throat, on the tongue. Lisan, Lisan says it without movement. Lisan equals tongue, double-tongued or not, furcated or not. His mouth equals farm. His coat is breathed. In the language of the father, warm, he thinks, how warm she is, the language of my father, on the lips, on the tongue, lisan, sometimes even hot, burning hot, har, equals hot, like the sand in August, like the wind in the streets, the wind, ari, ari, and the soul, aru, aru, that asphalt of the, on the roads, rises above us at 50 degrees and more in the city. Baghdad, Baghdad. With this hybrid lyrical text tissue, a writing back to the center succeeds, not at the level of the rewriting of key texts of European classics or the historic, historiographical writing um, of an own history outside a colonial narrative as Salman Rushdie would plead for. But based on the language of art and aesthetic innovation and before any content, the disembodied and eloquent snout of the prologue, respectively that what it overtly expresses, weaves itself as one of three text layers through the main part of the novel. The nameless and voiceless yet physically well-equipped narrator compared to the free-floating jaw, creates himself, while walking and exploring memories, a second narrative thread, a second storyline, and a confirmation of his sheer existence. These memories form, as it were, the third 
and more complex level of the text. The memories are grouped on the one hand around the figure of the father, around its origin and the family in Baghdad. On the other hand, his memories concern an unnamed woman, a she, that befalls the text on page 38 as a kind of personified reminder. Memory and remembered figure receive a face in the text, perhaps as a rhetorical figure, as a prosopopeia, as a personification that gives a voice and a face and at the same time withdraws it due to the functioning of this rhetorical figure. Then she appeared again, sometimes the memory in his head, in his skull, in his brain. Sometimes she turned her back on him, turned slowly to him, looked at him, looked deep into his eye. Was she now? Was she then? Or was it back then, as it is now? Who or what is she? She, the memory, the female character? Was she? Did she exist at all? And in the end of the novel learns that she is dead. And it's also kind of coping with her um, death. Uh, she, committed, she committed suicide. Um, Jacques Derrida refers to prosopopeia as a central metaphor for the discourse about memory, about memory as a tropological spectrum. Quote, the figure of prosopopeia looks back and keeps in mind, it elucidates and calls back into memory, end of quote. But uh, this look back, this look back as a memory, as a reminder, this look deep into uh, the eyes does not meet a name, it encounters a she whose existence is questionable. The fictio persona or prosopopeia leads to a place where the name turns out to be an effect of a rhetorical operation. The text posits an epitaph by prosopopeia, however not as a monumentalization but as a figuration. The text figures a she that has no name. It figures the figure of a woman as one as formulated with Bettina Menke, as a monument of memory without an implication of an illusionary revival through the act of reading. The rhetorical gesture of prosopopeia becomes what can be expressed as prosopagnosia, a term coined uh, by Jacques Derrida, as a simultaneous removal of what has been generated by the figure of prosopopeia. It becomes a false awareness of self-consciousness. It's a very interesting uh, concept he developed in um, uh, a very uh, important book of him, uh, the postcard, postcard. Although he believes to remember that he, that it, that she was different once, maybe, certainly she she was, and she was different. He saw her in front of him, and he looked at her face, central European traits, narrow nose, eyes almost dark blue, her mouth swelled, her lips 
He listens. And Goranji was. Was she? Was she on his way? Was she? She was and she was gone and she was a monument of memory in the text and she was different. She was different from him, the narrator, who walks the way, who listens to the flow of water lost in memories. A half-breed face appears in the text. And by this small little um, uh, citation, I do not have a slide. I read it for you, it's from the text. Atmospheres densify contours, a hybrid face, maybe the skin of its forehead, brown, drawn into wrinkles, horizontal, pleated, vertically, walk on. And further on his way, while walking, beside a river in the dark of the night, he recalls the, the narrative. Black before his eyes, in the almost perfectly darkened night, could not estimate the sense of time lost, his judgment gone astray, threatening, and before he could gather his thoughts, he saw her in front of him, saw her lying in front of him, naked on the bed. And this scene seems menacing, it's indicating quasi prudentically a possible disaster. And I already told you that it uh, would really occur. She and his memories become a metaphor quasi for the presence of absence, for the withdrawal of essence, for death in life. At the same time, uh, an ethnic difference is marked. Uh, Central European traits, whatever this exactly is, meet a hybrid face, dark, his face, opposite to hers, Central European traits, bright. However, his and hers, they had something in common. The foreign, it was familiar. The familiar was foreign often, for both, for her and for him. Here it's not the skin color that generates foreignness, but the foreign becomes the thing that connects the firm, the common, the familiar, familiar to strangers. The hierarchy of the dichotomy, foreignness and familiarity, breaks along the two skin colors, along the two faces, between which a space develops, okay, also speak of a third space, uh, in the tension area between identity and difference. So coming to an end with this part. The differentiation of the face is that facial features entail no hierarchy, also no gendered hierarchy. This is also an important feature of the book. But become a metaphor for the deconstruction of cultural differences and boundaries that give the text throughout contour and for the opening of a so-called third space as a kind of post-colonial counter space as a textual space in which the stories merge into one another and produce a hybrid, hybrid break where new subjectivities gain ground. Many of such spaces and characters open the, themselves up within the text in a constant interplay in performative dynamics on both the level of content as well as on the poetic, rhetorical and structural level of the text.
one texture into space, in between space, is that between Vienna and Baghdad, which also describes an identity spectrum of the narrator, a spectrum with no clear affiliation, split between the Iraqi origin of the father and the Austrian mother. And this is quite an important quote. Was he thus being this man's son, Austrian, because he was born there, in this country, in this city? He did not feel as one of them, always felt somehow associated with, yet at the same time different. Was clearly recognizable as somebody different than the other among the children in the village, at school, in the city. Belonged to them and did not belong, was different. Quite similar, he feels, with respect to the other side of his identity, the Iraqi side, and he remarks upon arrival in Baghdad during the one-time trip to the home of his father. Also in the eyes of the guard at Baghdad airport, he was different, not only for his friends in Austria. The two cultures met inside him. He felt himself as a bodily, as a corporal place of encounter. So just in the same way as the stories in the text flow into each other, cross each other, culture, cultures and the differences in the body of the narrator intersect. A body which becomes the place of the encounter itself becomes the place of negotiation of identities, the place in which the one in the other is embodied and vice versa, even beyond the ethnic or cultural difference beyond sexual difference. Now, central for the reading of the text have been the poetics, the rhetoric and the composition of the text that create this in-betweenness in the mode of an unusual and unraveling texture and the mode of a text break within which articulate contents are negotiated that undermine the common oppositional schematizations and they break with preconceived preconceived assumptions and tend to disseminate, to disperse and to reconnect due to their rhetorical constitution itself. Also the figure of the author avoids on the basis of migration experience a polar between bound to all the associated ascriptions and thus undermines the so-called Avatus Horizont with respect to both the terminus of migration literature as well as the one of global literature or new world literature. Furthermore, the text does not stress gender difference at all. Gender is not negotiated overtly. There is a he and a she, though without any gender-specific ascriptions or binary pitfalls. One could call the whole piece also a form of equity feminine, but that is yet another aspect. And I will not elaborate on this here tonight. Farouk, anyhow, escapes common attributions and codification. The in-between that is negotiated in the text shows uncommon needs for a literary historiography that, consequently, has to open a new chapter. Maybe this chapter will be called, one day, The Poets of Migration. And some of those new Irish poets I'm going to show you right now 
and just very briefly. briefly. So uh, this is one of the texts um, that I really like best. I did research here and looked what could be part of my sample. And the new Dubliners, that's really a, a, a great finding. Uh, interestingly, one can, although this text is uh, printed in Ireland, one cannot buy it, uh, for example, at Hodges and Fees. They, they cannot order it. So what I did then, I ordered it via Amazon. Yeah, I'm Amazon American. And um, also the next one, uh, this one. You don't get it in Ireland. This is crazy. <laughs> and I really had a problem because the books never reached me. So what I had to do was, um, the only one that I got then was um, Daniel Zukowski's here at the library. They have one copy and uh, they barely let me copy it. <laughs> it was really an endeavor to get some copies of the text. But uh, I reordered re the whole sample via Amazon and hopefully in Vienna they will reach me. Yeah. So they got lost somewhere in Dublin. There are many distribution centers and I don't know where, where they are. So, <laughs> however, um, uh, Daniel's text I could um, examine a little bit better. And what you see here, you know, uh, Daniel lives here, he's an academic, he teaches here, he lives quite a, uh, I think he lives here in Dublin for six or seven years, so he's quite capable of English. However, this text is written very paradoxically, very short sentences, well formulated and, and well done, but uh, one sees that he does not have the epic power to write uh, as a uh, native speaker. However, this is a very acclaimed book. The, the, the critics are absolutely fond of it. Uh, it's about the stories of um, expats who live in, in Ireland and who just tell their, their way of life here in Dublin, very interesting stories of the uh, generation between 30 and 40. It's a lot about sex and, and going out and um, doing the job and yeah. Uh, it's re really nice, a nice read and, and I can recommend it to you. And it's, um, it's in a way, um, like, how do you say in English now? Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, um, ex experimental, yeah? So, you see, it's, uh, it's a story about the last night with a beautiful woman, and then you find those words, candles, flowers, dildos, satiation, etc. Yeah? Like, uh, it's a little bit like concrete poetry also, just uh, put in the middle of the page, and here you have another example. This is really interesting. That's what uh, the book <laughs> is about. Uh, mostly sex. Yeah, very well written, though. You know, I mean, it's 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 not easy to write about sex, as you all know. Uh, but this is 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 really very well done. And here you have like the concentration of the theme, also like um, in a way concrete poetry. 
So I think this fits very well to, to my sample of singing Saif, where, you know, it's easier for me, of course, to, to do this um, in German. I, I did it in English because I translated it for you. Uh, but I think I could easily uh, find a line between these uh, poetic and rhetorical specificities of Semi and, for example, this text. And I'll show you another one. This is also very interesting. Ifedin Madimbo. <coughs> she has also such a migration story. She's also an academic. Uh, she knows how to write. And of course, she's more familiar uh, with the English language. Uh, however, what she does, this is also a very nice example. And oh, I, you know, I, don't, I don't have the book. So <laughs> I worked with Google Books. The, the book that I ordered is uh, somewhere in Dublin. And what she does is uh, very nice because she. Ah, you don't see it here now. What? Wait, wait, no. Um, it's the slide that uh, hides what I would like to tell you. It's a little bit more down. I don't know why it's not here. Uh, she, she fills the text with African passages that are not translated. Just uh, all over the text you find um, untranslated passages of her mother tongue, this uh, African um, dialect, she, she, uh, her, her first language. So I also think this is remarkable um, and um, a nice approach, it gives me a nice possibility to reflect on, on this certain kind of poetics of the text. And then we have another example of a, of a, a different situation. Uh, Ona Frawley, maybe you know her, she's quite known, as I've found here from the uh, critics. Uh, her parents lived in America and they came, they came back to Ireland. And it's also a kind of um, situation of coming home. And uh, although it's the same, more or less the same language, uh, she has those two um, roots and, and she deals with it. And um, it's more the, than the content based uh, approach to uh, poetics of migration. Um, but um, I, I started reading it and I think I can also find some very interesting traits that um, could make this sample round, let's say, and, 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 and um, give me different perspectives to it. And last but not least, uh, you all know him. And the very interesting thing I learned about Hugo Hamilton is uh, uh, that, that he grew up... Uh, uh, Irish speaking Gaelic and um, his father prohibited him to speak English and he, as he claims felt himself always um, an immigrant, a stranger in, in Ireland due to, to not uh, being allowed to speak English so although I find this um, it, it's a good read but it's written very conventionally however, I think it's interesting one notices that he bears in mind this, this in-betweenness, yet in a completely different way. 
However, I, I mean, I do not want to restrict myself too much with respect to my sample. And I also think that that making such a clear statement toward this situation of the immigration um, is worthwhile noticing. And um, so I, in one way or the other, I will include him in my sample, and I'll find a, an Austrian counterpart. So. Thank you very much for this quite long. <laughs> yeah. so.